Welcome to the Apologia Podcast, the audio-only archive of the Apologia YouTube channel. Note that some content was designed to go with visuals, but the imagination can be a powerful thing. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider giving it a 5-star rating on the podcast app you're using now to help us reach more people. Or, since this endeavor is ad-free, consider going a step further and supporting us for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash apologia. But for now, let's get to the episode, part of the Evolution Exposed Exposed series, posted August 31st, 2020, titled Irreducible Credulity. We are putting on a conference called Evolution Exposed. We pulled in experts on the subject of evolution for a total of 11 speakers and gave them just 15 minutes to give us their best. And on top of all that, a one-hour Q&A panel session. You're going to love Evolution Exposed. Anyone can refute evolution. You to the zoo to me and you. All that a fairy tale. Not allowed to ask questions. It made evolution look ridiculous. That was the foolishness of atheism. I yeah. knew I was going to get corrected. No, I wasn't even listening to your answer. <laughs> this guy might be coming for you. Welcome to Apologia, and another installment of Evolution Exposed, Exposed. Our claim-by-claim investigation of the Creation All-Star Mega Seminar. If you'd like to catch the series from the beginning, tap on the playlist above my head. Previously, Ray Comfort had attempted to cast doubt on specific scientific findings by calling into question the character of a person in the past who helped to popularize and advance the findings. This would be akin to arguing against gravity because Sir Isaac Newton was rude at parties. But that's behind us now. And Ray is moving on to what he seems to think are rhetorical questions about body development. Another question I've had for years about evolution is this. And I've asked many people that say they believe in evolution, especially atheists. Why especially atheists? Of all the people in the world who accept the scientific facts and basis for evolution, far more of them are Bible-affirming Christians than are atheists. In future episodes, I hope we'll have some evolution-affirming Christians join us. But always remember that accepting biological evolution isn't an attack on God. It's just accepting the clear evidence of our history, whether a supernatural hand was involved or not. So where did the eye evolve from? Can you explain the eye to me? If you've got someone who believes in evolution, just press them for a minute and, ta- and tell them that the eye cannot function unless it's fully formed. If the eye isn't fully formed, it can't see. It's very complex, 137 million light sensitive cells. It needs to be fully formed to function. So ask them, when the slowly straightening up ape began to walk, how did he see if the eye wasn't fully evolved? Because the eye needs to be fully evolved and if it took millions of years to evolve, how did he see? The Descent of Man postulated that human beings and modern great apes share a common ancestor, which in turn shares a common ancestor with all modern primates, which in turn shares a common ancestor with all living mammals, and so on. Since each of these mammalian descendants of a common ancestor have eyes, even those that are quadrupedal, it would also be theorized that their common ancestor already had eyes long before any of them began adapting to a bipedal lifestyle. Therefore, there would be no need for an erect individual to evolve an all-new set of eyes. 
They would merely use the set they inherited from their ancestors, which is known as the vertebrate eye. If Darwin's theory of common descent is correct, then the eye must have formed over time with each modification to the system being useful to the organism. This would also imply that we can remove individual parts one by one with the remaining structure still retaining function. The first thing we can immediately remove from the human eye is the lens. Without the lens, the eye can still make out rather detailed images, but with less definition. In case you doubt that this structure can even be used for sight, look no further than sea snails, blue crabs, and other invertebrates which all possess this precise eye. In fact, some species like the blue crab will occasionally develop a lens in their lifetimes due to the remaining mineral deposits after molting. All of these species retain gelatinous fluid within the eye, which also helps in focusing. But if we remove the gelatinous fluid from the eye, we are left with a simple pinhole camera like the one found today in species such as the Nautilus. This type of eye has far less acuity than its descendants, but it does offer directionality based on which photoreceptors are stimulated at any given time. Reducing the size and area of the rear surface of our pinhole camera, we are left with a simple divot which offers limited directionality, but directionality nonetheless. We see this kind of eye today in planarians and other flatworms. From here, all we need to do is reduce the number of photoreceptive cells one by one until we are left with a simple eye spot. If this eye spot offers any directionality, it is because of where it is located on the body. Otherwise, it merely detects light. We see eye spots like this in some of the simplest animal life, such as bell jellyfish. From here, all we have to do is separate any neural or chemical connection to the organism and we are left with photoreactive cells, which is almost a redundant statement. The fact is that photochemistry has been a part of life since its inception. Nearly every life form on Earth reacts in some way to light. Because of this, it is inappropriate to describe the eye as a singular concept when in fact there are a massive number of structures used to detect light in nature. Eyes have evolved at least 40 times in the history of life. They offered an advantage to our ancestors, and so they were inherited by us. We did not need to re-evolve them when becoming bipedal. The human eye isn't even the best eye in nature, but it is quite useful, as is every intermediate step we can trace in its potential inception in simple photochemistry. But why did the heart evolve when there was no blood and the blood wasn't fully evolved? And why were there blood vessels evolving when the blood wasn't fully evolved and flowing through the body? Why did the heart evolve when there was no blood? Wait, 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 wait. Stop putting the cart before the horse here, mate. From what we know, the vascular system evolved before the heart. There are animals today that don't even have one. Jellyfish, or more accurately jellies, don't have one. Flatworms, corals, all of these animals don't have a heart and don't even have a vascular system. Then you go to the other spectrum and there's animals with more than one heart, such as cephalopods like squids and octopuses. They have three hearts. The point of a circulatory system is to move fluids with gases dissolved in it around the organism. The bigger an organism got, the volume also became bigger, but at a proportionally faster rate. Specifically, as a solid three-dimensional body enlarges, its surface area increases in proportion to the radius squared, whereas its volume increases to the radius cubed. This leaves an upper limit to how big a cell can get because gases, more specifically oxygen, can only get so far into a cell. So it made sense after a while, a single-celled organism becomes a multi-celled organism to allow it to become bigger. Then the same thing happened, only on the macro scale, which is why the vascular system evolved. 
That helped with transferring these essential gases while allowing the organism to become bigger. Some circulatory systems don't even require blood. In the case of primitive animals, such as jellies, flatworms, sponges and corals, their circulatory system is that of seawater flowing through their bodies, so technically speaking they have no circulatory system. These animals are called aciliomates. These creatures use simple diffusion across the skin and gut and throughout the intercellular medium. Other, more complex animals use a blood vessel system, either open or closed. An open system is where blood bathes all the organs and cells directly, where a closed system is where the blood is contained to blood vessels. Using the molecular clock in living animals, scientists were able to trace the first animal that would have had some sort of vascular system to around 600 to 700 million years ago. This animal, as I said, probably didn't have a heart. The way it was able to use its vascular system was through peristaltic muscular movement, similar to the wave-like contractions your intestines or esophagus muscles use. As animals became more active and more complicated, the simple system the earliest animals used didn't work well enough, so selection pressures encouraged the evolution of the heart. There are multiple examples of convergent evolution in regards to the heart. In arthropods, for example, have an organ called the dorsal vessel which pumps blood in one direction only, to the head. While you might not want to call it a heart, it serves a similar purpose to one. Cephalopods have a closed circulatory system that takes oxygen from the gills and moves it to a ventricle which then pumps it around the rest of the body. However, other mollusks, such as a clam, has an open circulatory system. Vertebrates have even evolved more complicated circulatory system and include the epithelium cell lining in the vascular system. One suggestion as to why this lining is found is because it reduces energy use as it is smoother than vascular systems without this lining. If we were to go by our DNA, the Drosophila or the fruit fly genus has a gene that they've called Tin Man. This gene is orthologous to our own gene NKX25. Orthologous means that it is a gene that is similar in sequence to another gene which codes for a similar function which suggests that they originated from a common ancestor. So that's your sexy word for the day. So once the gene for a vascular system evolved 600 to 700 million years ago, as animals became more complex, selection pressure for a more complicated system also evolved. This is how we ended up with such a huge variety of hearts and vascular systems. There's no mystery here. These jabs at evolution would fall under the umbrella of irreducible complexity arguments, sometimes posed by creationists, which were once the flagship of the intelligent design movement. But over and over again, systems proposed to be irreducibly complex have been demonstrated to come from a progression of small refinements, and sometimes repurposing of existing parts to fulfill new functions. Irreducible complexity thinking suffered its grandest setbacks when the idea was adjudicated in the courts in the 2005 Kitzmiller v. Dover trial. The judge, himself a Bible-believing Christian, weighed months of testimony and argumentation and ultimately declared intelligent design and irreducible complexity to be non-scientific in the eyes of the law. I'd highly recommend this great documentary produced by Nova for the full story. Huge thanks to today's science communicators. Tony Reed, a personal inspiration to me and the creator of the invaluable How Creationism Taught Me Real Science series here on YouTube. And Nervardia, one of the best new channels in the world of scientific learning and skeptical thinking. Check out the links in the description and tell them that Apologia sent you. Up next on Evolution Exposed Exposed, Ray invites us to add to that the insanity of atheism. Ray seems confused about the connection between atheism and evolution, but the book of Ray's confusions would take many volumes, or at least videos. See you there.